66. Lar kind of viands, but would allow them to illustrate their self-value of the porcelain of all human clay, by the richness and rarity of their subscriptions, whilst to S.I.B.D.H.O.R.P., with a fine sense of humility, might be permitted to give his weight in calves or sheep's heads be it understood we must have the whole weight of the colonel, for if we were to sink his awful, what in the name of veal would remain? A Duke of Wellington should be allowed to await against nothing less than the fattest venison and the finest turtle, as the Duke, too, is rather a lightweight. We should be glad if he would condescend to take a paisley weaver or two in the scale with him, to make his subscription of eatables the more worthy of acceptance. All the members of the present cabinet would of course be weighed against loaves and fishes on the present occasion we would accept nothing under the very finest wheaten bread and the very best of turbot, whilst a lorry who has worked such a reform in cutthroats, should be weighed out to his ward in the most select stickings of beef. All we propose to ourselves in these our weekly essays island to give brief suggestions for the better government of the world, and for the bringing about the millennium, which when we are given away gratis in the streets may be considered to have arrived. Hence, we cannot follow put through all its natural ramifications the benevolent proposition here laid down. We trust, however, we have done enough. It is not necessary that we should particularize all public men, tying them to be weighed against specific vines, Remember, our readers will at once recognize the existence of the parties, and at once acknowledge their fittest offerings. It may happen that a peer might very properly be weighed against shin of beef, and a Christian bishop be popped in the scale against a sack of periolinkos. It remains, however, with Londonderry or Exeter to be weighed if they will against golden pheasants and birds of paradise. We are perfectly aware that if many of the elect of the land were to weigh themselves against nearly the things they are worth, that a great deal of the food subscribed would be unfit to be eaten even by the poor. We should have rats, dogs, snakes, bats, and all other unclean animals, but in levying the parties to weigh themselves at their own valuation, the poor may be certain to sup in the Apollo. On this principle we should have the weight of a Lindhurst served to this neighborhood in the tenderest house lamb and a Stanley kicking the beam against so many, sucking doves, cue fashions for the month, coats are very much worn, particularly at the elbows, and are trimmed with a shining substance, which gives them a very glossy appearance, a rim of white runs down the seams, and the covering of the buttons is slightly opened, so as to show the wooden material under it, hats are now slightly indented at the top, and we have seen several in which part of the brim is sloped off without any particular regard to the quantity abstracted, Walking dresses are very much dotted just now with brown spots of a mud color, thrown on quite irregularly, and the heels of the stockings may sometimes be seen trimmed with the same material. A sort of basket work is now a great deal seen as a headdress, and in these cases it is strewed over with little silver fish, something like common spread, which gives it a light and graceful character. Punches pencilings, mumbrix xii, the cheroot. An excellent thing at island when you get a genuine none of your coarse white chapel abominations, but a veritable satin-skinned, brown Indian beauty, smooth and firm to the touch, and full-flavored to the taste, such a one as would be worth a jewel side, with a glass of tawny port, but the gratification that we have been wont to derive from our Rio Manila has been sadly disturbed of late by a circumstance which has caused a dreadful schism in the smoking world, and has agitated every divan in the metropolis to its very center. The question island, whether should a cheroot be smoked by the great or the small end, on this apparently trivial subject the great body of cheroot smokers have taken different sides, and divided themselves, as the Lilliputians did in the famous egg controversy, 
into the big Indians and little Indians. The dispute has been carried on with great vigor on both sides, and several ingenious volumes have been already written, proving satisfactorily the superiority of each system, without however convincing a single individual of the opposite party. The Torahs, we had observed, had as usual seized on the big end of the argument, while the Whigs had grappled as resolutely by the little end, and are puffing away furiously in each other's eyes. Heaven knows where the contest will end, for ourselves. We are content to watch the struggle from our quiet corner, convinced, whichever end gains the victory, that John Bull will be made to smoke for it, and when curious people ask us if we be big Indians or little Indians, we answer, that, to oblige all our friends, we smoke our manilas at both ends, ballads of the briefless, number one, the rule to compute, oh, tell me not of empires grand, of proud dominion wide and far, of those who sway the fertile land where melons three four tuppence are, to a rule like this I ne'er aspire, in fact my book it would not suit, the only rule that I desire, is a rule nice I to compute, go speak not of the calm delights, that in the fields or lanes we win, the field and lane that me invites is Chancery or Lincoln's Inn, yes, there in some remote recess, that if, I practice on my flute, till some attorney comes to bless with a rule nice I to compute, number two, Signing a plea, oh, how oft when alone at the close of the day I've sat in that court where the fig tree don't grow and wondered how I without money, should pay the little account to my laundress below, and when I had heard a quick step on the stair, I thought which of twenty rich duns it could be, I have rushed to the door in a fit of despair, and received ten and sixpence for signing a plea, chorus, signing a plea, signing a plea, received ten and sixpence for signing a plea. They may talk as they will of the pleasure that's found, when venting in verse our despondence and grief, but the pen of the poet was ne'er, I'll be bound, half so pleasantly used as in signing a brief, in soft declarations, though rapture may lie, if the maid to appear to your suit willing be, but I could write till my inkstand was dry, and die in the act yes of signing a plea, chorus, signing a plea, signing a plea, die in the act yes of signing a plea, I'll cut by Sir Peter. With illustrations by A. N. A. C. R. O. N. P. D. R. O. N. I. U. S. Cervantes. H. U. D. I. B. R. A. S. And, Punch. A case in point. From A. N. A. C. R. O. N. Greek. The eyes H. A. U. D. O. N. Greek. D. U. Z. N. A. I. D. N. I. X. N. A. C. R. O. N. G. R. O. N. I. L. A. B. A. N. I. S. O. P. T. R. O. N. A. T. R. A. C. O. M. A. S. M. A. N. U. K. U. S. S. I. L. A. N. D. S. U. M. A. T. O. P. A. N. A. Free translation by, Punch. The C. U. D. E. E. Off by the women I am told, Tompkins. My boy. You're growing O. Exclamation point D. Look in the glass, and see how there your pole appears reflected there. No ringlets play around your brow, tease all Sir Peter Laurie-ish now. This is a graceful as well as a literal rendering of the bard of Teos. The word Greek, Cylon signifying nudus, inonias, envies, fetus, anglicy, Sir Peter Laurie-ish ed, of, punch, a tribute by Pignarolinius, quad summum formate accus established city or capuli. Vornantes comas tristes abejit hyums nuncumbra nudatis wajam temperamurant, ariocae atritis naipta dustapi lives, both helax natura doom, quae prima datis the atopi nostra gaudia, prima rapis, in felix modo crinibus nightbus, febo pulcrier, et soror phoebi, bat nunclae beer air, vel rotundu horti to beer, quad creobitinda, ridens fugis et times puellas, ut mortem cities venire critis, Sito jam capitis paris partum. A free translation by, Punch. Tompkins. Your dished. By light luxuriant hair. 
like, a distress, hath left thy kaput bare, thy temples mourn the achumbrejas locks, and yield a crop as stunted as a stubble field, Roland and Russ, your greasy gifts are vain, you give the hair your share to cut again, and happy Tompkins, late thy ringlets rare, the unwomb well self to a rival might despair, now with thy smooth crown, nor the fledgling's chops, nor east-born neckeye's magic razor straps, can I, and laughing maids you fly in dread, lest they should see the horrors of your head, glory, like death, hath clouded o'er your morn, Tompkins, you're dished, your chin France locks are shorn, a scrap from Cervantes, deliver me from the devil, cried the squire, is it possible that a magistrate, or what do you call him, green as a figure should appear no better than an ass in your worship's eyes, by the lord, I'll give you a leave to pluck off every hair of my beard if that be the case, then I tell thee, said the master, he is as certainly the ass as I and Don Quixote and thou Sancho Panza, at least so he seems to me, Don Quixote, a coincidence from Butler, shall hair that on a crown has placed become the subject of a case, the fundamental law of nature be overruled by those made after, tease we that can dispose alone whether your heir's hair shall be your own, who debris, a climax by, punch, Sir Peter Lorry passes so quickly from hyper-loyalty to downright treason, that he is an insolvable problem, as wigs were once worn out of compliment to a monarch, so when the queen expects a little heir, Sir Peter causes a gentleman, over whom he has an accidental influence, to have a little hair too, but oh the hypocrite, the traitor, he at the same time gives a shilling to have the haw ear cut off from the crown, it is quite time to look to the announcement extraordinary, Punch begs to state that, owing to the immense press of matter on hand, the following contributions only can expect insertion in the body of Punch during the whole of next week, contributors are requested to send early carriage paid, and the punch does not pledge himself for the return of any article. Turkeys for which punch undertakes to find cuts, and plates unlimited, sausages, to match the above. Mem, no a new preference, or bill monopoly, Epping and Norfolk equally welcome. Mens fives, per dozen thirteen as twelve, no returns. O.H., the roast beef of old England, with additional verses, capable of various encores, puddings received from ten till four. Punch makes his own sauce, the chief ingredient is brandy, which he is open to receive per bottle or dozen, large hampers containing small turkeys, and see, may be pleasantly filled with lemons, candied citron, and lump sugar, to the ladies exclusively, private and confidential, quite unknown to Judy, Bryant has had orders to suspend a superb mistletoe bow in the publishing office, Punch will be in attendance from daylight till dusk, to prevent confusion. The salutes will he distributed according to the order of arrival, to punsters and others. Punch begs to state he is open to receive tenders for letterpress matter, to be illustrated by the N.B. They must be sent and sealed, and will be submitted to a select committee, consisting of Peter Lorry, and Borthwick, and Deathburg. N.B. No cutting his stick need apply. Pen and palette portraits, taken from the French, by A.L.P.H.O.N.S.E.L.E.C.O.U.R.D. Continued. Portrait of the Lover, Chapter I.I., in which the author treats of lovers in general. All lovers are absurd and ridiculous. The passion which spiritualizes woman makes man a fool. Nothing can be more amusing than to observe a bashful lover in company where the object of his affections is present. He is the very picture of confusion and distress, looking like a man who has lost something, and knows not where to seek for it. 
his eyes wander from the carpet to the ceiling, at one moment he is engaged in counting the panes in the window, and the next in watching the discursive flights of a blue ball around the apartment, but while he appears anxiously seeking for some object on which to fix his attention, he carefully avoids looking towards his inamorata, and should their eyes meet by chance, his cheeks assume the tint of the beetroot or the turnip, and his manifest embarrassment betrays his secret to the most inexperienced persons, in order to recover his confidence, he shifts his seat, which seems suddenly to have shot forth as many pins as the back of a hedgehog, but in doing so he places the leg of his chair on the toe of a gouty, cross old uncle, or on the tail of a favorite lap dog, and, besides creating an awful fracas, succeeds in making inveterate enemies of the two brutes for the remainder of their lives, there are some lovers, who show their love by their affected indifference, and appear smitten by any woman except the one whom they are devoted to, this is an ingenious stratagem, but in general it is so badly managed, that it is more easily seen through than a cobweb, lastly, there are a select few, who evince their tender regard by perpetual bickerings and quarrels, this method will frequently mislead inquisitive ants and guardians, but it should only be attempted by a man who has full confidence in his own powers, lovers, as I had observed, are invariably objects of ridicule, timid, jealous, and nervous, a frown throws them into a state of agony it would be difficult to describe, and a smile bestowed upon a rival breaks their rest for a week, only observe one of them engaged in a quiet, interesting tatty a tatty with the lady of his choice, he has exerted all his powers of fascination, and he fancies he is beginning to make a favorable impression on his companion, when bang, a tall, whiskered fellow, who, rumor has whispered, is the lady's intended, drops in upon them like a bombshell, the detected lover sits confounded and abashed, wishing in the depths of his soul that he could transform himself into a gnat, and make his exit through the keyhole, meantime the newcomer seats himself in solemn silence, and for five minutes the conversation is only kept up by monosyllables, in spite of the incredible efforts of all parties to appear unconcerned, the young man in his confusion plunges deeper into the mire, he twists and writhes in secret agony remarks on the sultriness of the weather, though the thermometer is below the freezing point, and commits a thousand gaucheries to happy if he can escape from a situation in which nothing can possibly be conceived more painful, the lover at different ages, it would not be easy to determine at what age love first manifests itself in the human heart, but if the reader had a good memory I now speak to my own sex, he may remember when its tender light dawned upon his soul, he may recall the moment when the harmonious voice of woman first tingled in his ears, and filled his bosom with a known rapture, he may recollect how he used to forsake trap ball and peg top to follow the idol he had created in her walks, how he hoarded up the ripest oranges and gathered the choicest flowers to present to her, and felt more than recompensed by a word of thanks kindly spoken, oh, youth youth, pure and happy age, when a smile, a look, a touch of the hand, makes all sunshine and happiness in thy breast, but the season of boyhood passes the youth of sixteen becomes a young man of twenty, and smiles at the innocent emotions of his uneducated heart, he is no longer the mute adorer who worshipped in secrecy and in silence, each season produces its own flowers, at twenty, the time for mute sympathy has passed away, it is one of the most eventful periods in the life of a lover, for should he then chance to meet a heart free to respond to his ardent passion, and that no cruel father, relentless guardian, or richer lover interposes to overthrow his hopes, he may with the aid of a license, a parson, and a plain gold ring, be suddenly launched into the calm felicity of married life.
I know not what mysterious chain unites the heart of a young lover to that of the woman whom he loves. In the simplicity of their hearts they often imagine it is but friendship that draws them towards each other, until some unexpected circumstance removes the veil from their eyes, and they discover the dangerous precipice upon whose brink they have been walking. A journey, absence, or sickness, inevitably produce a discovery, if a temporary separation be about to occur. The unconscious lovers feel, they scarce know wherefore, a deep shade of sadness steal over them, their adieus are mingled with a thousand protestations of regret, which sink into the heart and bear a rich harvest by the time they meet again. Days and months glide by, and the pains of separation still endure, for they feel how necessary they have become to the happiness of each other, and how cold and joyless existence seems when far from those we love, that which may be anticipated, at length comes to pass the lover returns he flies to his mistress she receives him with blushing cheek and palpitating heart, I shall not attempt to describe the scene, but throughout the day and night that succeeds that interview the lover seems like one distracted, in the city, in the fields alone, or in company he hears nothing but the magic words, I love you, ringing in his ears, and feels that ecstatic delight which it is permitted mortals to taste but once in their lives. But what are the sensations which enter the heart of a young and innocent girl when she first confesses the passion that fills her heart? A tender sadness pervades her being her soul, touched by the hand of love, delivers itself to the influence of all the nobler emotions of her nature, and borne heavenward on the organ's solemn peal, pours forth its rich treasures in silent and grateful adoration. At thirty, a man takes a more decided I wish I could add a more amiable character than at twenty. At twenty he loves sincerely and devotedly, he respects the woman who has inspired him with the noblest sentiment of which his soul is capable. At thirty his heart, hardened by deceit and ill-requited affection, and preoccupied by projects of worldly ambition, regards love only as an agreeable pastime, and woman's heart as a toy, which he may fling aside the moment it ceases to amuse him. At twenty he is ready to abandon everything for her who he idolizes rank, wealth, the future. They weigh as nothing in the balance against the fancied strength and constancy of his passion. At thirty he coldly immolates the repose and happiness of the woman who loves him to the slightest necessity. I must admit, however injustice to our sex provided his love does not interfere with his interest, nor his freedom, nor his club, nor his dogs and horses, nor his petites liaisons to scolices, nor his hour of dinner the lover is always willing to make the greatest sacrifices for her whom he has honored with his regards, the man of thirty island moreover, a man of many loves, he carries on half a dozen affairs of the heart at the same time he has his writing desk filled with billets too, folded into a thousand fanciful shapes, and smelling villanously of violets, roses, bergamot, and other sentiment loaders, he has a pocketbook full of little locks of hair, of all colors, from the light golden to the raven black. In short, the man of thirty is the most dangerous of lovers. Let my fair readers watch his approaches with distrust, and place at every avenue of their innocent hearts a dear bargain, in consequence of an advertisement in the sporting magazine for several old boats. Some daring villains actually secured the following venerable gentlemen, Sir Francis Burdett, Lord Palmerston, Sir Lumley Scaffington, Jack Reynolds, and Mr. Whittacombe, the venison dealer however, declined to purchase such very old stock, and the aged captives upon being set at liberty heartily congratulated each other on their out of school, an attenuated disciple of the ill-paid art which has been described as one embracing the delightful task which teaches the young idea how to shoot, in a fit of despair, 
being but little skilled in the above sporting accomplishment, endeavored to cheat nature of its right of killing by trying the efficacy of a small hanging match, in which he suicidically doubled the character of criminal and Jack Ketch, upon being asked by the redoubtable civic theater what he meant by such conduct. He attempted to urge the propriety of the proceeding according to the scholastic rules of the ancients. It may, replied Sir Peter, be very well for those chaps to hang themselves, as they are out of my jurisdiction, but I'll let you see you are wrong. As Punch's literary intelligence, we understand that the author of Jack Shepard, and C, is about to publish a new romance, in three volumes, post-octavo, to be called James Green Acre, or The Hero of Paddington. We are requested by Mr. Cadmuck, of Seven Dials, to state that he has a few remaining copies of All Round My Hep on sale. Early application must be made, to prevent disappointment. Mr. C has also to inform the public that an entirely new collection of the most popular songs is now in the press, and will shortly be published. Price one halfpenny. Mr. Grant, the author of Random Recollections, Island it is said, engaged in writing a new work, entitled Quacks as they are and containing copious extracts from all his former publications, with a portrait of himself, an essay on false wigs, written by Lord John Russell, and dedicated to Mr. Walkley, MP may shortly be expected, Punch's Theatre, the United Service, the man who wishes to study an epitome of human character who wants to behold choice samples of all sorts and conditions of men, to read out of a small, a duodecimo edition of the great book of life must take a season's lodgings at a Cheltenham, a Harrowgate, or a Brighton boarding house, there he will find representatives of all kinds of eccentricities, members of every possible lodge of odd fellows that Folly has admitted of her crew mixed up with everyday sort of people, sharpers, schemers, adventurers, fortune hunters, male and female widows, wags, and Irishmen, hence, as the proper study of mankind is man, a boarding house is the place to take lessons, even on the score of economy as it is possible to live decently at one of these refuges for the destitute for three guineas a week, exclusive, however, of wine, servants, flirtation, and other extras, a result of this branch of study, and an example of such a mode of studying it, is the farce with the above title, which has been brought out at Covent Garden, Mrs. Walker Mrs. Orger keeps a boarding house, which also keeps her, for it is well frequented, so well that we find her making a choice of inmates by choosing to turn out Mr. Woodpecker Mr. Walter Lacey a mere sleeping apartment boarder to make room for Mrs. Coo Mrs. Clover, a widow, whose demands entitle her to the dignity of a private sitting and bedroom lodger. Mr. Woodpecker is very comfortable, and does not want to go, but the hostess is obstinate, he appeals to her feelings as an orphan, without home or domesticity, but the lady, having been in business for a dozen years, has lost all sympathy for orphans of six and twenty. In short, Mrs. Walker determines he shall walk, and so shall his luggage a plethoric trunk and an obese carpet bag are on the stage, for she has dreamt even that has legs such dreams being, we suppose, very frequent to persons of her name. You are not quite satisfied that the mere preference for a better inmate furnishes the only reasons why the lady wants Mr. Woodpecker's room rather than his company. Perhaps he is in arrear, but remember he pays his bill, so it is not on that score that he is so ruthlessly sent away. You are, however, not kept long on the tiptoe of conjecture, but soon learn that Mrs. W. has a niece, and you already know that the banished is young, good-looking, and gay. Indeed, Mrs. Walker having perambulated, 
Miss Fanny Merivale Miss Leah Pierce, and listens very composedly to the plan of an elopement from Woodpecker, but speedily makes her exit to avoid suspicion, and the enemy who has dislodged her lover, before whom the latter also retreats, together with his bag and baggage. There are no classes so well represented at boarding houses as those who sigh for fame, and those that are dying to be married. Accordingly, we find in Mrs. Walker's establishment Captain Whistleborough Mr. W. Farron, who was doing the extreme possible to get into Parliament, and Captain Pacific, R. and Mr. Bartley, who was crowding all sail to the port of matrimony, well knowing how boarding houses team with such persons. Two men who come under the scheming category are also inmates. One of these, Mr. Enfield and Mr. Harley, is a sort of parliamentary agent, who goes about to dig up aspirants that are buried in obscurity, and to introduce them to burrows, by which means he makes a very good living. His present victim island of course, Captain Whistleborough, upon whom he is not slow in commencing operations. Captain Whistleborough has almost every requisite for an order. He is an army officer, so his manners are good and his self-possession complete. His voice is commanding, for it has been long his duty to give the word of command. Above all, he has a mania to become a member. Yet, alas, one trifling deficiency ruins his prospects. He has an impediment in his speech which debars him from the use of the W's, like the French alphabet, that letter is denied to him, when he comes to a syllable it begins, he is spellbound, though he longs to go on, he pulls up quite short, and sticks fast, the first he meets with in the flowery paths of rhetoric causes him to be as dumb as an oyster, or as O. Smith in Frankenstein, in vain does he try the Demosthenes plan by sucking pebbles on the Brighton shore and haranguing the Aves, though he is unable to address them by name, all is useless, and he has resigned himself to despair and a Brighton boarding house, when Mr. Enfield Bam gives him fresh hopes, he informs him that the proprietress of a pocket burrow resides under the same roof, and that he will for the usual consideration get the captain such an introduction to her as shall ensure him a seat in her good graces, and in other in street Stevens, Mr. Bam, therefore, goes off to negotiate with Miss Polcom Mrs. Taylor and makes way for the intrigues of another sort of an agent, who lives in the house. This is rivet Mr. C. Matthews, a gentleman who undertakes to procure for an employer anything upon earth he may want, that so much per cent. commission. There is nothing that this very general agent cannot get hold of. From a hack to a husband from a boat to a baronetki from a tortoise shell tomcat to a rich wife. Matrimonial agency island however, his passion and he has plenty of indulgence for it in a Brighton boarding house. Captain Pacific wants a wife, Mrs. Coe is a widow, and all widows want husbands. Thus Rivet makes sure of a swinging commission from both parties, for, in imagination, and in his own memorandum book, he has already married them. Here are the ingredients of the farce, and in the course of it they are compounded in such wise as to make Woodpecker jealous, merely because he happens to find Fanny in the dark and in Whistleboro's arms, to cause the latter to negotiate with Mrs. Coop for a seat in Parliament, instead of a wedding ring, and Pacific to talk of the probable prospects of the nuptial state to Miss Polcon, who was an inveterate spinster and a political economist, professing the Malvolian creed, rivet finding Fanny and her friend are taking business out of his hands by planning an elopement and amateur, gets himself regularly called in, and manages to save Woodpecker all the trouble by contriving that Whistleboro shall run away with the young lady by mistake, so that Woodpecker might marry her, and no mistake, Bam Bam's Whistleboro, 
who ends the peace by threatening his deceiver with an action for breach of promise of Berto. All the other breaches having been duly made up, together with the match between Mrs. Coy and Pacific. If our readers want to be told what we think of this farce, they will be disappointed, if they wish to know whether it is good or bad, witty or dull, lively or stupid whether it ought to have been damned outright, or to supersede the Christmas pantomime whether the actors played well or played the deuce whether the scenery is splendid and the appointments appropriate or otherwise. They must judge for themselves by going to see it, because if we gave them our opinion they would not believe us. Seeing that the offer is one of our most esteemed especially over a boiled chicken and sherry, most merry, most jolly, most clever colleagues, one, in fine, of punches, united service. I have been running ever since I was born and am not tired now, as the brook said to Captain Barkley. Hooky, as the carp said, when he saw a worm at the end of the line. Nothing is certain, as the fisherman said, when he always found it in his nets. Brief let it be, as the barrister said in his conference with the attorney. He is the greatest liar on a earth, as the cockney said of the lapdog he often saw lying before the fire. When is a hen most likely to hatch? When she is in earnest her nest. Why are cowardly soldiers like butter? When exposed to a fire they run. Do you sing? Says the teapot to the kettle yes. I can manage to get over a few bars. Bah! Exclaimed the teapot. Punch! O are the London C-H-A-R-I-V-A-R-I. Volume 1. For the week ending December 25th. 1841. How Mr. C-H-O-K-P-A-R keeps a Merry Christmas. Mr. C-H-O-K-P-A-R Island to the fingernails. A respectable man. The tax gatherer was never known to call at his door a second time for the same rate. He takes the sacrament two or three times a year. And has in his cellar the oldest port in the parish. He has more than once subscribed to the fund for the conf. 